Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager. As always, the resilient podcast out there, thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. This is a conversation with Dan Toller. He's a podcaster that does a fascinating podcast, a deeply, deeply fascinating podcast called Relevant History. As I say, I think it's on par with Dan Carlin, both in terms of content and quality. He got my attention with a podcast specifically about the Ark of the Covenant, something that I knew very, very little about. I highly recommend that you listen to this podcast. It's it's really interesting and very amazing. And I feel like I learned like a whole lot about the Ark of the Covenant from the Ethiopian perspective. So what I was going to say was, I have a lot of podcasts to release, which I'm going to be doing. And again, these are all sort of the uh, interview format that I hope you guys like. I certainly, I love doing them. I really, really do. Um, anyway, I wanted to say that, and I wanted to say, so be on the lookout for a whole lot of very interesting content from from me, from all the people that want to talk to me about whatever it is they're doing in this world. Um, anyway, so as always, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too, and thank you very much, and this is episode 102 of the History Voyager. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it's essentially rated safe for work, but I, I, I don't know. I, you know, we talk about some, some, I guess, adult themes, but, you know, I don't recall that there's any dirty words per se, but, you know, better, better be safe than sorry, yada, yada, yada. All right, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I'm here tonight with Dan Toller, who is a great podcaster. I've heard lots of independent podcasts in the last year, and i got to tell you, this guy's podcast is a real, real highlight. And I just want to, you know, congratulate you and also you, you do a real quality show it's on par i think with dan carlin uh, in terms of content and production and uh things like that so um anyway uh you guys you guys you're gonna you're gonna enjoy this a lot uh we're gonna talk tonight uh primarily about this deep dive he did into the ark of the covenant which i knew criminally little about uh, going into this, but it was so fascinating, and uh, I just I couldn't help but think that my listeners need to know about this man and they need to hear this about these podcasts he did about uh, about the Ark of the Covenant. So Dan, uh, why don't you uh, take it away? Ben, geez, pleasure to talk to you, man, and uh, an honor always to be compared to Dan Carlin. I mean. I don't know how many of your listeners listen to him. I presume if they are listening to history podcasts that some number are at least familiar with hardcore history and Dan Carlin and his work. And man, like if you're comparing me to him, I'm honored. I'm honored. 
if if I ever reach one tenth of his I, audience, I I'll be like mission accomplished with this podcast. Uh, and 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 by the way, like uh, like I'm impressed listening to your show too. You you get some pretty good guests on here, and it's not every day that you hear an indie show with real quality qualified guests. And and I'm you you, you have a listener here as well, man. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, I've, I've discovered that if you just go on social media and you're just honest with people and you act like an adult and they act like an adult back, uh, you know, you, and there's some really fascinating people out there that maybe don't have PhDs behind their name and they don't have, you know, like, but their stories are fascinating. Like, um, I did one today, actually. Um, I I put it out today, and it, it, he was a libertarian co-host on a show, and and we talked about our, our takes on uh, some of the things going on in the news. But I really wanted to talk to you before I pivot into the tulip bubble about about uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, which. I didn't know anything about Beyond Church and uh, Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, yeah, the uh, so the Lost of the Covenant. I'm sorry, the Lost of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is one of those great stories because, like, the object itself, it's like the Holy Grail. It's mythical, right? We can. We could even make an argument it never existed. Maybe it did exist, and there were copies. And it's it's just this this kind of mysterious object that nonetheless has fascinated people for thousands of years. And credible archaeologists have spent their entire careers trying to track this thing down, or, or at least determine, hey, did it exist? What happened? And Excuse me. So many of the traditional stories focus on the uh, the uh, Jewish tradition and the Western Christian tradition, which I mean, fair enough, right? It's a Jewish artifact. We expect to see some Jewish traditions on this, and given how big a part the Ark of the Covenant plays in the Bible, we expect to see some kind of Christian tradition on this. But what fascinates me about the Ark is the fact that Ethiopia in particular has this totally, totally crazy third myth about the Ark that deviates from everything else we've already heard from other cultures. And... Uh, seeing this culture that's kind of very far removed from what we would consider Western society, uh, seeing them nonetheless tie so much importance to this mythical object was just fascinating to me. And for me, my show is, you know, nine times out of 10, I do an episode. I am studying something and sharing what I've learned with my audience. This was that experience. It was just a 
hint of a story that fascinated me to the extent I had to learn more. And as soon as I learned more, I'm like, I have to share this with people. How did, how, how is this not taught in grade school? You know? Yeah. I mean, okay. So it's Ethiopia. If I get it, if I get it right, uh, is Eastern Africa. Okay. I knew that, but it basically had always been independent until the Italians uh, sort of. Yeah, yeah. From from ancient times until really the 1930s, Ethiopia was a an independent kingdom. Technically an empire, you had various dynastic issues inside the country where people called themselves kings. Uh, but modern people would call it a kingdom. I mean, however you want to parse it, yeah, it was an independent society. It had been there since multiple centuries BC. And even the Romans had considered them a political equal, you know, a, a major trading partner. And I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. I didn't even know that. I mean, which is shameful, really. I mean, well, no, I, I don't know that it is because no. it's just the kind of thing we're not taught. But uh, it's it's going a little bit more meta. Uh, the history of global trade is something I've been looking at for a few years now. And it just shocks me that, like, I see historical records of Pliny drawing maps with China on them. Ancient Romans drawing maps of the world with China on them. And you don't hear about that. You don't hear about the fact that, like, modern things like global trade have really been going on for a long time. And if you were a country like Ethiopia, uh, if you were located right along one of these major trade routes, you could become a major power in your own right just from investing in that and that's it's such a modern idea that like people don't apply those same principles when they're thinking about societies from you know one two three thousand years ago but trade was still a thing people put things on boats and sent them from one place to another and if you were at one of the locations in between you could profit off that and I, I don't know, I guess with our modern minds and I mean, you know, geez, being totally current here, look at the, the incident that just happened in the Suez Canal this week. Like we think that global trade and uh, and things of that nature are just totally modern and that these are new challenges. And no, 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 that's been going on since somebody figured out they could hang a piece of cloth over a board and use it as a sail. You know? Okay, why don't we tell all right, so the Ark of the Covenant, let's let's zoom out. Let's back up. Cause I'm sure I mean I'm you know, listeners all over the world, people might not have paid attention in church, people might not have seen uh Raiders of the Lost Ark, etc. So the Ark of the Covenant So according to tradition the Ark of the Covenant is the literal written word of God, right? So the uh, Jews escape from slavery in Egypt, right? Moses leads his people out into the desert. And while they're kind of wandering between 
uh, slavery in Egypt and freedom in the promised land in uh, Israel, the Jewish people come to Mount Sinai in the Egyptian desert. And there in the book of Exodus in the Bible, uh, God directly delivers to Moses a series of commandments. Now, in like popular culture, what has become so popular are just the quote-unquote Ten Commandments, like the most important religious laws that were inscribed on these couple of big stone tablets. But the Ark of the Covenant was... The, the, the entire covenant, I should say, was much more complicated, like you're talking about all kinds of very detailed religious laws. And at any rate, this covenant, this bargain between the uh, Jewish people and God was literally written in stone. And if you want to believe the Bible and the legends, uh, it was written in stone by God himself. So... You want to talk about, like, an important historical document? Well, what about the words of God himself etched in stone? Uh, that That's pretty high level. But the... Uh, and, and, and that is what the Ark of the Covenant was. Yeah. And it wasn't... It was not just the words themselves. It was actually... This whole uh, sort of golden uh, inscribed chest that the Jewish people were supposed to carry it in. It's like, again, these are stone tablets with the word of God written on them. This is really important, sacred stuff. So the Ark itself is not just the tablets themselves, but also a, a sacred container built to you know specific specifications. If you read the uh, the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, they talk about how there are you know specific uh, types of angels modeled on the various corners of the ark. Like it, it is very specific how this box is built. But long and short of it, it's a sacred box carrying the word of God, and according to the story, the word of God inscribed by the hand of God Himself. And this is this story the way you tell it. This is from the Ethiopian tradition, and and not the well not the, the stories Christian tradition. So go ahead, go ahead. So why don't you? No, no, no the story that you're telling the the I don't mean story the the, the yeah the fact pattern of your podcast that you're telling comes from the yes Ethiopian tradition. So the. Ethiopian okay. tradition, the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, heck, the Muslim tradition, they all agree on the creation of the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's a sacred box. It holds these tablets inscribed by God with the Jewish law. And uh, as we read in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant is taken to the temple in Jerusalem. And again, all your major religious traditions agree on this. Where people start to differ is what the heck happened to the Ark after that? Uh, right, You have this ancient Judaism where the Ark is like central. And then right around the time of the Babylonian captivity, and I don't want to get too off into the weeds here, but that's when... Uh, 
historically and biblically, the Jewish people are conquered by the Babylonians and they go off into exile for a while. Uh, During that time period, according to the Jewish and the Christian and the Muslim traditions, the Ark just kind of disappears during that time. Nobody really knows what happened. And you get all kinds of movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, where people go off looking for the Lost Ark. But according to the Ethiopian tradition, uh, the Ark was only lost during that time period because the Ark that the Jews already had was a fake. Uh, it had been taken, the, the original, the true Ark, the true written work of God, had been taken by the Ethiopians years before. And all of that... Go ahead. Okay. No, 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 I was just saying, like, okay, uh, so, so they took it. Yeah, so, right, according to this story, the Ethiopians didn't just steal the Ark, right? It wasn't like they stole something that wasn't theirs. According to the legend, the Ethiopian queen, a woman named Queen Makeda, pays a visit to the Jewish king Solomon. Now, the interesting thing here, and the thing that really keyed me in on this, is that we have this Ethiopian legend of Queen Makeda visiting King Solomon, and that ties right in with the story in the Bible, where Solomon is visited by a queen named the Queen of Sheba. And where the Queen of Sheba is from has been debated endlessly by historians. Now, I should point out, in all fairness, there is a kingdom in Arabia where they did have queens at the time. That was kind of notable because most of these kingdoms were run by men. So if you had one run by women, like that got written down. So we know there was a female Arab queen at the time, but at the same time, we know that at least according to Ethiopian legend, there was a female empress in Ethiopia at the time, and she was kind of a big deal. And according to the Ethiopian story, she is the one who visits King Solomon while he's building his temple. And... Another interesting point where these legends converge, the Ethiopian legend and the Judeo-Christian legend, is the idea that uh, the temple was being built specifically to house the Ark of the Covenant. Um, In and of itself, that's not a terribly far-fetched idea. That the Ark of the Covenant is literally the most sacred object of temple Judaism. So if you were Jewish in this time period and you were building a temple to house some sacred artifact, uh, the Ark of the Covenant would have been the most sacred thing you should house. So that shouldn't be a surprise. But at the same time, the Ark is kind of homeless at the time while the Queen of Sheba... According to legend, this Ethiopian queen, Makeda, is visiting Solomon. And 
she visits him and she becomes instructed in the ways of according to the story of of proper religion and worshiping the one true Jewish God and she's down with all that and she according to the story secretly marries King Solomon now the fact that this marriage is secret on the one hand might be sort of one of those cover yourself moves by people who write legends because they say, well, see, of course there's no record that make Hada ever married Solomon because uh, it was a secret marriage. But according to the story, the marriage is secret because uh, the kingdom of Ethiopia at the time is only allowed to have virgin queens. And if Makeda were to marry King Solomon, she would give up her throne. So she keeps it all secret and she comes home, but she comes home to Ethiopia pregnant. She is carrying the child of King Solomon. And that child is a young man named Menelik who will grow up and, you know, uh, eventually coax out of his mother the identity of his father. Apparently, she wants to keep her throne, so she tries to maintain her status as a virgin queen. She tells him he was immaculately conceived and all that, which, again, some other interesting biblical parallels there if we want to go with the whole idea that uh, Menelik was some kind of divine conception but the the legend doesn't even go there the legend just says that was kind of her deflecting and that at the end of the day uh queen Makeda acknowledges to her son menelik that he is indeed the son of king solomon of israel and so king menelik goes to israel because he wants to meet his dad uh Right. It's it's one of those things in an ancient religious document that's identifiable. There's so much stuff we can't identify with as modern people. Like people get really worked up in historical stories about like defiling sacred sites or sacred objects. And like today's world is less religious. Like I feel like I have to explain that. If if that makes sense. Well, that would no, it does, and that was one of the things that I thought was so interesting about your crusade, uh, like the crusade, the the Ark of the Covenant, but also I'm I'm also listening to your your uh, crusade podcasts. All right. One of the things that you do very well is you explain to modern people, like modern Western folks with smartphones going on a walk, the importance of religion in these uh, middle-aged people's lives in a way that I don't see outside of Game of Thrones, honestly. Man, I love the Game of Thrones reference, but am I wrong that... I mean, this is just my perspective. As a history fan, I love Game of Thrones because it had that kind of complexity. My well, so, but that's 
one of the things that I think, one of the reasons I think a lot of people don't like history or think they don't like it is, first of all, they put everything on a test and you got to bubble in the test. Yeah. You got to bubble in yep. the Scantron or whatever. Right. But the other thing is, like, you don't, like, we're all about what's the manual say? Like, today in our world, we're like, what's the manual say? We're not thinking, you know, what's the, what does the dragon say? You know, and, and yeah. you believe in the dragon. Yeah. And, you know and, what I'm saying? And I mean, I, I feel like in, the, the way we teach history, like when we do like high school history classes, it's almost a natural instinct if you're like a history teacher. You, you want to identify with your students. Like that's important as a teacher, particularly in, in like a public school system where we have where half those kids don't even want to be there. It's, it's important to be like, hey, I'm cool. I'm one of you. I didn't get history either, but check this out. And the problem is there's this temptation to, to like minimalize, to say like, well, look at these silly people in the middle ages, burning witches. How superstitious were they? Or. And then, and then you realize like, oh my God, like, so the thing about the thing that, that you do very well, in your in your telling of the story is you conv you convinced me that there were right think well first of all what is right thinking right but you convinced me that there were right thinking Ethiopians running around that a thought that was the Ark of the Covenant whether it was or not whether the Ark of the Covenant actually exists or not but also B that they were totally believing in their queen. Like they totally believe that she, yeah, she yeah. She says, "I'm whatever. I'm a virgin, and they, uh, they this son just kind of popped out of me because of God's will." And they're like, "Oh, okay, yeah. the queen says so." Hey, that <laughs> right. happens. Good, good. Yeah, right. And what I mean, honestly, like one of the things that I love about history is I love how it allows you to think outside of your own box. Like, what are we doing? Like, you know, you can answer this or not, but what are we doing now that a thousand years from now, somebody else is going to come along and be like, God, why did they think that? They didn't really think that. You know, did... did you know, did, uh, I don't know, did Bill Gates or, or Steve Jobs actually think that? I don't think so. They were smart men. They right? were educated men, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what it was I was reading earlier today, but it was, it was along you know? those lines. It was somebody from the 1700s and they were, oh, I'm going to botch it now. They were, they were talking about some regressive practice like bleeding for disease or something. They were. Oh, thank goodness we have these do modern doctors who are right. willing to bleed people when they're sick. Thank goodness we're out of the dark ages. I'm like, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. The old doctors were right. <laughs> like, 
Well, that's the thing about so. That's the thing about history is people think history is a line, right? People think history is a straight line. It's not. Oh, it's a strand absolutely. of spaghetti. It's a strand of wet spaghetti, and it goes everywhere. Absolutely, man. I mean, I was I was talking at supper tonight. I was talking about how at my old college, you know. Uh, years ago, my old college in a in a conservative part of the part of Georgia, uh, which then was more conservative then than it is now. Okay, you had to prove that you had a vaccine to go there, or you had to be like a Jehovah's <laughs> Witness. So you One either had to be vaccinated, or you had to be like the anti-vax religion. <laughs> You had, and there wasn't like a choice number three. It was like you're either a Jehovah's Witness or you're up to. Oh, so your if, you're, if you're an so Elijah's is, Witness, you're out of luck, <laughs> is, is what you're saying, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just saying. I really remember that as a box oh, on, the, on the form. You know, I, I really. I re- but you look at today where I'm not taking the vaccine. I'm not thinking that, you know, and and, hey, listen, I talked to a guy yesterday, put the podcast out today. He's very vaccine. He's very vaccine hesitant. But if you listen to his story as to why, I totally get it. Like, I get it coming from his perspective that like the army shot him up with some anthrax. I think it was the problem with lying as a public leader or as even, even just on the institutional level, like you don't get to take that back. And if you're representing an institution, even after you're gone, your institution does not get to take that back. Or you go back to, geez, was it the the sixties or the eighties when they had that vaccine that was like, tainted with mercury and this is where like all the anti-vaxxers get their stuff from is oh they got mercury in them well no that they, they had one that was tainted with mercury it was in the u.s and they said oh we're not going to release it anymore so what do they do they they go take it to like brazil and third world countries in africa and inject people there so like to me the vaccine hesitancy, like, I mean, for me, like, I work at home. I have contact with maybe three people a week. I'm going to wait a year, thank you very much, and see if people start dropping dead from side effects. But, like, yeah, if I worked retail or something where I'm out there every day in contact with strangers, like, I mean, let's be honest, I'm in a privileged position here. <laughs> not really having to go out much like yeah it's easy for me to say i'm gonna wait yeah if you if you're working retail maybe you got a different opinion on that i mean i mean i my thought is um i mean i've said it on the podcast before i have asthma um I have various neurological things up. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you got any kind of respiratory issue, man, jump on that. But, like, this is exactly the kind of thing that bothers me with that, though, is because people don't 
take into account nuance. I'm like, oh, okay, you're old, you're diabetic, you have asthma, you have other health conditions. Yeah, any silly minor health concern from the vaccine pales into comparison to what <laughs> what's going to happen if you get the virus. Please get the vaccine. Yeah, if you're a nurse or a doctor or a waiter or a retail worker, you have like all kinds of common contact with people. Please get it. I live in, I say it a lot, I live in one of the biggest, fastest growing places in, in the Americas, plural. Uh, so, yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I was in a Toastmasters group uh, years ago, and I heard that with your bags unpacked, sitting in that church basement uh, where Toastmasters was, uh, you're you're no further than thirty hours from some huge percentage of the globe. So just think on that. Well, I believe it. I mean, hey, man, I'm 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 an upstate you know? New York, and as soon as the first case of COVID was reported in Manhattan, I was wearing a bandana on my face. And I walked into some stores and people greeted me as if I were coming there to rob the place because <laughs> I'm wearing a bandana. But I'm like, hey, this disease is dangerous. It's close. And now that it's been a few months and rates haven't gotten that high, I'm, I'm a little more relaxed. But at the same time, I don't know, I think it frustrates me that this has gotten political because it really just should be a personal decision based on your personal health needs and, and, and your own personal risk of exposure too. I mean, like if you're working with the public, it's just so different from being like in my situation where I'm a freelance writer and, you know, twice a week I go to the grocery store and the liquor store, like, come on. <laughs> How how many people are being right. exposed from Dan Toller? But this this yeah. this whole complete lack of nuance is is very frustrating to me. It it is very frustrating. So get so okay. Let's get meta. Let's get super historically meta. Put on a historian hat in the future, right? Um, are they going to look at us and say they lost nuance or did we ever have it to begin with? Man, that is, that is a deep question. See, I don't know. I don't know that we ever did. On the other hand, I don't know that we ever didn't. It's. I think there are some questions on which people just get emotional. Like, you, you you talk about various political issues, for instance. Like, you can talk about the minimum wage yeah. with most people all day without anybody getting just emotional and dropping out of the conversation. But anybody who's like me and who loves a good debate knows that you still just don't even bother bringing up abortion. <laughs> it's like, that's just going to derail right. the conversation, and you're going to have 10 people I've... for and 10 people against, and ain't any one of them changing their minds no matter what anybody says. I mean, 
Okay, so what I'm saying is like, when you look at, say, Rome, okay, you brought up Plenty the Elder a second ago. I mean, Plenty the Elder was living at the same time as, as some gladiator person, right? Yeah. And you think about it, like, that gladiator, he was probably smart if he lived. He was probably smart. But was he some deep thinker like Plenty the Elder? Probably not. Well, maybe not. I don't know. You know? I don't know. <laughs> it's You know what's changed so much, though, is, like, modern technology. Because you say that. And I think, like, I'm a big right. Joe Rogan fan. I watch a lot of his stuff. And I okay. follow a lot of, like, the MMA guys. And one thing that strikes me, even looking as people who just aren't, like, primarily mar- martial artists, but, like, even, like, I'm a Sam Harris fan. And Sam Harris, this, you know, five foot nothing Jewish philosopher is an MMA fan and an MMA participant, right? It likes, it seems to me like all of these smart people, whatever field they're coming from, like they're all participating in MMA, uh, just a way to stay in shape, a way to participate, it's probably MMA of the mind a little bit. I mean, like I'm a I'm a hockey fan, right? Well, I, I like basically all sports. No respect, man. I'm I'm a but big it, football fan. Keep going. <laughs> so, but if you look at like, um, if you look at Gretzky, like when he was Gretzky, like when he was at the height of his powers. You know, the way he could pass a puck, the way he could do that. Artistry. He was opera he was playing chess with that puck. Right? You could totally t- like he might not have had he might have just had a high school education or whatever. But he was on this whole other level with where that puck was going. You know? I mean, because he wasn't the fastest by by any means. No, I mean... But he could sure pass a puck. It's funny how that that, that one skill can get you over the top. Like, I, you grew up watching Gretzky. I grew up as a kid in Chicago. And it was the early 90s. And if you know basketball, the Chicago Bulls pulled Jordan. off. Yeah, Jordan, right? Three championships, he goes to baseball, they don't make a championship, he comes back, they get three more. What a story. I, to your point, though, well, I think, I think I mean, what you're saying, though, at the same yeah. time, is that, like, having a good basketball IQ, or a good football IQ, does not necessarily make you a smart person, and, and we can extend that to... The other side, too. I mean, having a good political IQ, being able to know which way the winds are blowing, doesn't necessarily tell you which policy is going to be most beneficial over the next 20 years. Those are separate skills. Well, true. But then again, I mean, getting back, okay, with that, nobody would have said 20 years ago, like that you would have had 
first of all, like I read something today in a chat room that I thought, you know, whoever wrote that, whoever wrote that sentence in this chat room, he's a thinker, right? And what he said was, in 1996, nobody saw 2021. Like, nobody saw that you were going to have these conversations about the jobs are going to, like, this thing's going to come along and it's going to change. It's going to have this media revolution on the one hand. But on the other hand, all these traditional jobs are going to vanish. <laughs> you know, they're just, they're just going to vanish. Yeah, who could have predicted and, that? <sighs> I mean, more to the I point, know, like... But... Go ahead, go ahead. No, you go ahead. My thinking was, there was, was really that there's a limit to how far forward in time we can see and simultaneously see what's going to be important. Like, you said, right, who 20 years ago would have predicted um, this situation? But right, the real question is, who would have predicted that it would be important? Um, if that makes sense, right? You can look back to like... No, it makes all the sense Like the, the world. late 1970s, like... You know, some guy who's out of a job because of some government policy. Like, unless there's hundreds of him all willing to speak to the press, you're just not going to get a lot of action on that issue. All of a sudden, the, the, the government passes one law that destroys two jobs, and you've got 500 people on social media complaining about it. You, you, you get an instant response. Well and the thing like the thing um the thing that is so odd about our day right is okay you can be a guy that has a youtube channel that has if you do it right if you're lucky i'm not saying this is everybody but if you're lucky right or you're somewhat skilled or whatever. You can be a guy that has millions of views. And yet I'm on Twitter with this dude and I'm finding out that they're not paying they're not paying him what they owe him. Right? Oh, I gotcha. And I gotcha. Yeah, he's getting peanuts. Yeah. No doubt. Well, right, exactly. But you're looking at it and you're like Jesus. Like where I mean, on the one hand, you you saw that with the blues artists back in the fifties and in the forty before that even. But on the other hand, like this guy has a huge megaphone, basically. And I'm not going to say who it is on the air, but he's got a huge megaphone, and I think he's being. I don't know. I mean, I'd be shouting that from the rooftops, but if I would, if I were him. Well, so much, I mean, so much comes down in that sense to, right, what can I afford to protest? Like, have you seen what's been going on just these past 24 hours with the uh, 
the songwriters for the uh, the major pop artists with the that letter they published. No, no, no. What's that? So I've been in my I've been in my podcast cave. No, same, same. <laughs> um, I this just happened to pop up because and, and and it's because I I used to be in a band and I take an interest in songwriting and is it as it turns out all of these major songwriters something like 500 of them people who've written for major artists like Britney Spears and stuff they are they they just published a uh, an open letter today basically calling for an end to abuses in the copyright system and what happens is in songwriting the person who wrote the song gets royalties on all copies of that. Whereas the person who recorded the song only gets royalties on their copy. Now, the intention of this law is that um, right, a songwriter is going to be compensated for their song no matter who has recorded a cover. And a artist is going to be receiving compensation anytime that a copy of the song that they actually performed is being played. But what ends up happening is that uh, the songwriters keep almost all of the rights and then the record labels pressure the songwriters into selling their rights to the record labels. So what you get is uh, Britney Spears doesn't own the rights to her songs. The person who wrote the songs doesn't even own the rights to them. It's the record label. It, it's, it's just this buying up of ownership that sucks all the energy out of the space, so to speak. So like... So, like, you're essentially, like, you're hoovering up the rights to a song. And, like, I mean, if you, but if you think about, like, uh, I guess that's why, like, Bob Dylan, like, his catalog is worth half a billion. Right? Uh, he just sold his catalog, I found out this morning. Well, he, uh, was, it, was it Dylan or was that, uh, I didn't see that. I saw... Um... Paul Simon sold his. Uh, Dylan, yeah. Well, Dylan was the one that they have a number for. Oh, gotcha. Simon sold something. Simon sold it recently, but the number hasn't been published. Gotcha. Gotcha. But but Dylan's has, and it was half a billion. Jeez. Which is just a lot for Cannery Row and Cat's Cradle and... I mean, you know, on the one yeah. hand, geez, on the other hand, good for him. At least he probably actually wrote all of those, from what I understand. In a lot of these cases, you're talking about songwriters yeah. you've never heard of who've written some of the greatest hits you have heard of. And what happens is these pop artists squeeze them out. They say, okay. Well, what was the one? There, there was a band. I can't remember the band, but it was a, they were kids. You know, they were kids. And, oh, yeah, I remember. It was like one of the, the guitarists wrote a song making fun of the lead singer. Oh, boy. But the lead singer 
but the lead singer didn't realize it until years later. Oh, so wait, it had been recorded and released and all that, and then he realizes? Uh, performed, well, yeah, performed on a stage. It's it's actually, I think, they're one of their biggest hits. Um, and, 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 you know, they're like, I'm not performing this song anymore. I'm not doing that. <laughs> well, surprise, surprise. Oh this was supposed to mock me. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, okay. But, okay, let's try to bring the beam back. To... Yeah, yeah, really. Wow, wow, wow. Have we gone uh, far afield? Hey, I pray at the Joe Rogan Church of Podcast Editing. So all of this so far is going to make the show. Hey, that's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. But, uh, so, okay. So the thing I really love about your show is that you, with the arc, is that you can take it from the Middle Ages to, when do you stop? Okay, for the benefit of the audience, why don't you explain what I'm talking about? Like the overall arc without diving too deep into it. Oh, boy, that's a dangerous request. I will do my best. <laughs> so the story of this particular uh, three-episode arc of the podcast covers the history of Ethiopia from ancient times until the present day. And that starts, uh, as most ancient stories do, uh, with... Legend as opposed to verifiable history. And we start with the story where the first queen of Ethiopia, uh, Queen Makeda, has a secret marriage with the uh, ancient uh, Jewish king Solomon and has a son named King Menelik. And he goes back to visit his father, King Solomon, to understand his roots a little bit better. And he returns to Ethiopia, not just with a better understanding, but also with the Ark of the Covenant, which he has stolen. Now, the way we tie that together is, of course, that there is still a modern Ethiopian Orthodox church today, uh, right outside the Ethiopian capital, that claims to have the original Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's only a couple of special monks who are allowed to go into the room where the Ark supposedly is, so it's very controversial. But the fact that many Ethiopian Orthodox people today still believe this ancient legend that their queen and their king stole the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites and, you know, that the uh, Ethiopians are really God's chosen people, that's a major influence on all their history. And if you look at... The way they have chosen leaders, and I'm excluding modern democratic Ethiopia from this, but going back to anything before the 1900s, the way they chose leaders was based on how closely you were supposedly related to King Solomon. Well, all of a sudden, that 
history of the Ark of the Covenant, that relationship with King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba all of a sudden becomes really important if your claim to the throne of Ethiopia is based on that relationship. Were you actually the queen's son? Congrats, you're first in line. Oh, you're you're some fraudster, you know, waving around a piece of paper that's supposedly from some ancient king. Well, you're last in line. Right? It should be no surprise that when you tie the legitimacy of your monarchy to an ancient uh, story that you're going to have lots of people coming around in modern times making all kinds of claims, if that makes sense. And if it makes sense, why makes people sense. Would, would, would stick with the leaders who had, quote-unquote, the better claim, right? The people who could at least point to some ancestral tie to, uh, to the Solomonic dynasty. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what, what didn't you say that Ethiopia was a, a matriarchal society? Yes, prior to and 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 I should I should preface this by saying that this part of the story is more or less only attested to by legend, but according to the story, prior to King Menelik seizing the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. Prior to that, his mother, Queen Makeda, had ruled over a matriarchal society. So according to the legends, only women could rule over Ethiopian territory. And it was only by taking the Ark of the Covenant that uh, King Menelik sort of gained this right. It was not a replacement of the matriarchal society. It was more of an exception to the rule. Uh, it was, okay, we have a matriarchal society, but this guy is coming to us with the word of God you know, directly from the mouth of God. So we're going to make an exception in this case. I mean, that does lead to some questions, right? I mean, Queen Makeda, okay, she's part of this uh, matriarchal line, this matrilineal line. All she has is sons. Maybe she makes up this story to keep things in the family, to make sure that a man can now rule the country. Right? It's, 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 and I don't mean to cast aspersions on the Ethiopian legends here. I mean, this is an issue you have when you study the origin of any religion, is what motives did the founders have? Were they just trying to capitalize yeah, what, what on this one that? little thing that got blown out of proportion? Or, like, what actually was, you know, to our modern way of thinking, uh what actually might have been going on if you want to apply science to it or if you want to apply whatever to it, you know? Right, uh, right. Things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's play historical detective, right? This Ethiopian mission goes to Israel. There's no Ark of the Covenant. They're not actually stealing anything. Okay, okay, we strike 
all of the religious history completely out of the story. Well, something happened. What what got erased in favor of religion? If we're going to erase religion, then we have to look back and say, okay, well, what actually happened then? Because something did, if that makes sense. No, it, it makes total sense, and it does. And And there's a lot of things, like there's a lot of ways to look at history now where you can fold in psychology or you can fold in medicine or like you could say well okay you know like was king so-and-so was he having a seizure or did he have multi-personality disorder or whatever right so like with with ethiopia like you're like well um why would they have first of all okay I can't believe we've been talking for 55, almost 56 minutes, and we haven't directly addressed. Uh, so Ethiopia was Christian, was Christianized, or was Christian before Africa, right? So, correct? Before the bulk of Africa, yes. Um, Ethiopia... It's sort of in an interesting place geography-wise. It's along the Red Jeez, again, I have to clarify. It used to be along the Red Sea coast. Now it's a little bit inland because Ethiopia has moved, but it used to be along the Red Sea coast. And that was like a prime location for ships that were traveling between the Mediterranean Ocean and India. If you're if you're coming out uh, in ancient times, you're you're probably coming out in the Red Sea. There's not to get too current. Yeah. There's no Suez Canal. Forgive me, this has not always been the issue of the week, but <laughs> there is no Suez Canal at the time. Uh, trade is kind of coming through over land via Egypt and getting back on a ship in the Red Sea. But again, with sailboats and with slow travel, if you have the chance to stop off in Ethiopia, it makes a ton of sense. And so they sort of sort existed as a crossroads. And uh, right, we mentioned Pliny. When Pliny, the Roman writer, mentioned them, he, he mentioned Ethiopia as the world's third greatest empire. Now, being sort of provincial, he described uh, the empire of Axum, as it was called. He said, you know, the greatest empire is Rome, and after that is the Parthians, which is what the Romans called the uh, Persians at the time. And after that is the empire of Axum. Uh, But you had that that recognition. Uh, When you get to later times though i think you have a misconception that ethiopia was not developed and it's because like you said when when we think of africa we just think of africa as like a monolith but again ethiopia was on this trade line and that trade was going 
throughout the centuries. So even in the, the 18th and 19th centuries, we see the Ethiopians with technology on par with the Europeans. Now, maybe one decade they're ahead, one decade they're behind. Again, there's there's more detail in the story as I told it, but by and large, in contrast to much of Africa, the Ethiopians are they they were able to keep up with the first world countries in terms of technology. Or I guess what we would and again, I guess what we today with our Western versus Eastern bifurcation or whatever we interpolate this as first world. Yeah, but and that's a really, really poor way I don't to phrase think it. That's fair. I mean, I mean, I wasn't trying to throw you on the under the. Bus no, man, I, I didn't. Totally I didn't take it that way. I, what you're saying. I, I b- yeah. believe me. I, I, I think we both understand that sometimes when you're speaking to a general audience, it's easier to simple simplify things, right? Do I say? first world or do i spend 10 minutes explaining what first world means do you spend 20 do you spend an hour talking about well we have global capitalism or whatever and this creates winners and losers and it creates this and that and and (laughs) amen amen you know i i get it i get it but i'm Um, no to your point though there there is this idea I think that there is such a thing as quote unquote Western culture. And I, I think that that is in part one of the ideas that, that, that my podcast is trying to uh, dissolve. And I don't mean that there's no such thing as Western culture per se. I think there is, I think it's misunderstood. I think most cultures are misunderstood. Cause what do you okay? Let me let me ask. What do you think Western culture is? Well, I think for one thing, it has been misdefined, and I think this is why, intentionally or not, people conflate the idea of Western culture with racism. There's this idea that to be Western, you you have to be you know of a particular descent. Or whatever. And I think Western culture is broader than people define it. And I think the problem is that a lot of our cultural debates started during the quote unquote war on terror. And that was when people in the US and to a much, much lesser extent in Europe, but to some extent still, were worried about folks from primarily like Middle Eastern and North African backgrounds. And the problem with that is that Middle Eastern and North African culture are fundamentally Western. They come from those same Greco-Roman roots. You look at Islamic history in the caliphates in the Middle East and, and, and just so much of the basic assumptions those people make are basic assumptions based on Greek and early Christian history. And instead of leaning into that commonality, I think people in the West have leaned to the differences, which are just so much weaker than those things that we have in common. 
Well, I mean, okay. So I saw this documentary, uh, a National Geographic documentary, uh, not that long ago. It was this, uh, like a travel documentary. This guy was going through, uh, this journalist, he was going through the Sahara. And he stopped off at this place in, I want to say Morocco, but I could be wrong. Or maybe it was Libya. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but no, here's what I do remember. Here's what I, here's what's burned in my mind, right? So you have these guys, these old guys, and they're dressed like, like the locals because they are. They are the locals. And they're playing what, to my ears sounds like the blues right <laughs> but this is actually their folk music that's old you know old 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 goes all the way back so this yeah this right? is like centuries old music here but it sounds like the blues to e- your ears eons like well and it would to yours too because it is well i guarantee you like, i would i'm a, a- i'm a musician if it sounds like the blues i hear that <laughs> Well, it, but you take African, you take Africans, you put them in the South, you mix them with, you know, Europeans through slavery, you teach them another language, right? You, you know what I'm saying? You're going to create what we think of as the blues. And the guy was talking about, the journalist was talking about how these guys, this was from like in the 80s, what I saw or the 90s or whatever. But they were old fellas. And there was like, these guys have played with like Led Zeppelin. They've played with like, you know, and they're just, you know, they play with Led Zeppelin. They play with uh, Rolling Stones, you know, just just 601 and pick, you know, just shout out a name. But he named them. But it's like, you think about that. Well, you wouldn't say, I mean, I would hesitate to call them Western, but that's, they had a musical form that everybody from Little Richard to Motorhead to, (laughs) you know, on down the line, you know. No, I I hear you. I think that... (sighs) The genrefication of music, it's just one of those things. It's its one of so many cultural things that just, it creates labels that divide us for no reason. Like, you, you hit on a, a sensitive point there with music, because I, I used to sing in a rock band, and people would always say, well, what kind of music do you play? And... I like to mess with people, so I just say, oh, we play blues metal. (laughs) I would have told you that's real. I would have sat there and tried to... Hey, Guns and Roses, man. Guns and Roses. If if Sweet Child of Mine and... uh, Oh, oh, what is it? Uh, Night Train. You know, if those aren't blues metal, I don't know what is. Or like, uh, um, Jesus, any of those, uh, you look at Led Zeppelin, you look at, uh, 
you, you hell look at Jimi Hendrix. That is metal and the blues in the same body. Right. Jimi Hendrix. Right. It's it's the truth. But at the same time, like anything in the rock genre is just so flexible. Um I feel like any yeah. distinctions are made by fans and not musicians. Like or like what's amazing to me, even though he's probably personally a jerk, <laughs> is uh Hank the Third. Um Respect. Even though he's probably a jerk. Hank the Third is, is just fascinating to me. Well, yeah, the like as a person. With the amount of musical knowledge. Like I just think like I, I I do not work in business. I despise the world of business, but my dad was a businessman. And just like yeah. growing up and having conversations with him over in dinner and stuff, like I understand so many conversations from business oriented people. Like by day I'm a freelance writer and I'm working on a book for a uh, tech entrepreneur out of the West Coast. Okay. And it's just very easy for me to understand all the points he's making, not because I've been in business myself, but because my dad was a senior vice president for a Fortune 500 company, and he was always talking about business when he was at home. So when people you know talk about stock prices floating or about, various schemes a business might run. I just understand what they're saying. And man, I don't even know where this came from, but I'll, I'll tie it back. I'll tie it back. So you, you well, go now, to a historical have... source. Uh, you have to look at what they're knowledgeable about. Well, now I have other questions for you that I didn't even know I had. Oh boy. But before I haven't, <laughs> Before I have those questions, I need to I need to say that Hank the Third is Hank Williams the Third, who plays uh, he plays both uh, punk and metal, and he also does old timey country music. Essentially, when a judge makes him do it, <laughs> so I'm not making fun of some random person that's in the world, folks. Okay, okay, just calm down, everybody. All right. See ya. All right. <laughs> you know, at, at first I was you confused said, about where you're going, and then I'm like, oh my goodness. There are probably many people no, in I, this audience who are too young to remember Hank Williams and Hank Williams Jr. and who do not know Hank Williams the third. They think we're just picking on some guy. <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to tie that together is to paper, you know, to cover myself essentially but also because you said you know about business schemes and you told me off air that you'd heard my podcast with Casey about Facebook so when you think about those that what do you think about that uh the Facebook scheme in particular or or just yeah when you think about that what do you think about that? I don't think it's anything new. I think, well, you know, let me walk that back. I don't think it's 
anything new in the abstract. I think that in the general sense, <laughs> it, it it is very new. So it's so in the abstract, have people taken advantage of of ownership or knowledge to earn a profit? Yeah, right. You had Crassus in ancient Rome, who was a rich guy, who was famous for running uh, a a fire brigade. And the fire brigade would come around to your house when it was on fire and they'd say, uh, yeah, sell it to us for, you know, one-tenth of what it's worth and we'll put the fire out. Or we'll just let it burn out and we'll buy it up from you for a song later after you're liable for all the damage to your neighbor's houses. So, Crassus... <laughs> predictably became wealthy, uh, but was not respected. Uh, he was a, a profiteer. The Romans didn't respect that. But uh, my point being that I think the same things have happened throughout history. Right? People have made decisions based on greed. They have bought and sold yeah. from you know they, they they may have sold shares in companies that they knew were going bankrupt they bought shares for a song that they knew were going up this is just basic human corruption and it's been going on since the dawn of time <sighs> today yeah my my seat go ahead uh, go ahead no, my season three of my podcast about uh, the tulips, the tulip bubble is going to come into that. Oh, send me an e send me an email when episode one hits, man. I want to hear this. That that is the that is right up exactly exactly right. It's it's human greed. You you don't need a particular culture or a particular history or anything to push that button. <laughs> Okay, but you were saying like you were you were saying earlier a second ago. Yeah, so about Yeah, so uh people right they 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 want to limit history to uh to one era or one culture or they want to say that you know the history of this one era or this one culture is somehow special. This is the time and place when people stabbed each other in the back for business reasons. Okay, come on, man. When did that not happen? This is the time and place where people were really superstitious about religion. Okay, maybe sometimes in places people were more superstitious than others, but... By and large, you're still comparing apples to apples, right? If we were going to talk about comparing one era to another, if I had any message for people, it would not be that eras are different. It would be that they're surprisingly the same. And that a lot of historians will try to draw distinctions that are more academic than anything. Right. Are people in the 21st century less religious than they were in the 18th century? Of course they are. We have modern science. Many of us just do not believe in religion, period. But 
does that mean that religion and traditional beliefs and stuff are irrelevant? Well, I would suggest that if someone tells you that, you know, just because we have modern science, the ancient beliefs of the Ethiopian people are irrelevant, well, they're they're probably not listening to many people outside of their educated bubble. You know, that's and that's I hesitate to use the word unique about something like this, but I I I, I think that's a unique problem. I don't know that you've ever had so many educated people right in the same under the same geopolitical roof <laughs> to where if you're not careful you guys can like we can all think something because we think it right right but we don't know if you know what i'm saying like you know like years ago like like 10 years ago, uh, longer than that now, I was sitting in, a, sitting in a psychology classroom and I heard that we were not meeting stupid people anymore because of reason, reason, reason. And they threw up uh, some truly amazing results from uh, brain scans, essentially, that they thought proved it. And I, I looked at that and I thought, did you bother to ask a political scientist <laughs> or anybody that, right? Uh, seriously. I mean, really, did you bother? So I remember writing in my paper, well, all you've really done is prove that people that live next to major hospitals who want to get their IQ tested are smart. <laughs> And they might be smarter than they would have been. (laughs) But they, that's what was so wild. They didn't even realize, this was a major study, right? This wasn't some fly-by-night study. This was a major, major study that they never realized what they were doing. Right. Like the way in which they were doing it man i'm 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 i may be going outside of my lane here but I, my concern with the entire intellectual structure of our country is along the same lines like man i went to notre dame i have many many friends who are amongst the washington elite at this point or the elites in various businesses and The number of them who even know how to, I don't know, build a squared up bookshelf or install a sump pump in their basement. The number of people who have even that minute amount of dispersed knowledge, much less skill, zero to one percent. Zero to one percent. How many of them? How many of them know what the cost of eggs and milk are? Um, outside of myself, I would guess zero. I would guess that out of my friends from college, 
I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. One of my best friends dropped out of Notre Dame and got a union job as electrician. And he definitely knows what the cost of eggs and milk are. But as for the rest of them, I, I would guess that exactly zero do their own grocery shopping. And I would suggest that that is a big part of the problem with the country today. <laughs> I would agree with that. Actually, we agree. <laughs> wow. We actually agree. Wow, what a what a point of coming together. And uh Yeah. I I mean, yeah. Or like, okay. I think one of the biggest problems facing our country is that I talk to folks all over the country, all over the world really. Uh our country in the rural areas is falling apart really falling apart without a doubt without a doubt you know, i live in an urban area by choice my family is from a rural area and i say i live in an urban area by choice i'll revise that I'll, i live in an urban area because our society makes it so damn expensive to own a car <laughs> okay. i rent a car twice a year when i need one other than that i resign myself to living in an urban area but my goodness my parents live on a farm and i hear you yeah. i hear you i mean i mean the not not to get too specific but my goodness they're talking about a mileage tax like what is that going to do to rural I... communities if you charge a tax for gas mileage honestly I think I think our country is too big. You and I have expressed the same point. Have you read American Nations by Colin Woodard? Exactly. Yes. Okay, you've read it. We are on the same page like I am all for an amicable breakup of the US into 10 or 15 different smaller countries. Like, to me, that's the only see solution I, outside of us all killing each other. Because that's where we're headed. See, what I, what I think is going to happen is I think we're going to split up into uh, urban versus rural. I think we're going to be city-states. I really do. Um, in my other life, I dealt with uh, demographic data for the country. Okay. So, um, so you're intimately familiar we, with the urban rural divide then. I was sounding the alarm years. I'm literally one of the first people to the party. <laughs> I might have put out the chairs. Respect, man. Yeah. Respect. There there are still you know what I'm saying? the majority probably of people who are professionally in politics still don't understand this. It's so uh, I think and again we've we've gotten off topic, but I think that the major issue there was a there was a a force in the country called we call the billy migration right 
it was where people from Appalachia um, moved into the cities. Okay. I can speak to this. My, my dad grew up in West Virginia, moved to Chicago, and became a tech executive. All the other relatives on that family okay. are in coal mining. So, uh, yeah, right. yeah, but okay, exactly. intimately familiar. Go on. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I've got several books downstairs that say that they they pick out a year and they say that it ended on the, in around this year, around that year. And I read that and thought, no, it didn't, because I look at some of my friends. All right. And how, you know, they essentially Atlanta is in the in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. And I look at some of my friends and I think, you know, they're a little more Appalachian than they are suburban. Okay. But I think about it now and I'm like, it's over. The Billy migration is over. And that's the problem that you've set up this situation where these people, they cannot interface with urban America. They can't deal with it. They can't work in it, you know, (laughs) and you've got the capital, like the, the money moving into the urban areas. Okay. (laughs) And then when you get rid of earmarks, when McCain got rid of earmarks, that was a problem. You know what I'm saying? So, okay. You do a mighty fine podcast that I'm a big fan of, first off. Um, and I really... All, all of my listeners need to hear it. Okay. It's called Relevant History. And I'll provide the link in the description. Um... Is there anything you want to say about your podcast? (laughs) If you are a fan of Ben's podcast, you will probably be a fan of mine. Uh, We are are good compliments. Ben talks about history, uh, particularly as relevant to current events. I I know that was not your original intention, Ben, but I, I know as we've been talking, that's kind of what it's turned into, and I can appreciate that. Once you put a show online, it kind of runs away from you. But if you like what Ben is doing, and I certainly do, you will like my show because it gives you context on some of the politics that, well, might affect some of the things that Ben is talking about. So, hey, why not subscribe to mine too? They are very good compliments to each other. And the thing, uh, the thing I really love about your podcast is you set up the, uh, like I was listening to your podcast and then I listened to Bunga Bunga, which is a, a show about Italian corruption in Italy. Okay. Oh, wow. And Good I, back to back there. <laughs> no, it was. It really was. Um, it, it, your show is great. I love it. I hope you're okay with our little episode we had here for almost an hour and 35 minutes. Um, ben, I'm, I'm not only okay with it, I am honored to be here and happy to come back anytime. 
and and you you have a fan as well of a guest in me i'm happy to have you sir uh okay just i don't know if you know this but you're gonna have to hang on the line while it downloads but uh anyway anyway kids uh as always i'm having a great day and i hope you are too and uh this has been ben catchings of the history voyager and dan toller and i think this is going to be episode 102 all right